like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nourish by Nature Made, the number one pharmacist-recommended vitamin and supplement brand. Nourish is a personalized vitamin regimen customized to you. Backed by 45 years of science, they remove the guesswork from your vitamin regimen. With thousands of happy customers, Nourish is a trusted supplement brand by many. Visit Nourish.com to create your customized package today. Did you know you can get all your favorite fall drinks delivered right to your door? Well, you can with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Compare prices across your local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. Right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code FALL5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker. Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. I am very much a risk taker. I'm very much comfortable trying things. I'm not necessarily fearless. It's not that I don't have anxiety or fear. It's just that I have this ability to corral my fear and just do things anyway. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. Today, I'm talking to Lisa Congdon. Lisa is an artist, illustrator, and author based in Portland, Oregon. You've probably seen her work on Instagram or read one of her books, like Find Your Artistic Voice, The Essential Guide to Working Your Creative Magic, or Art Inc., The Essential Guide for Building Your Career as an Artist. She's incredibly prolific and very hardworking. And interestingly, she took a roundabout way to finding her career as an artist, stopping along the way in education, politics, and even law, before taking art classes in her free time and joining the early internet community added fuel to her fire. I met up with her at the Adobe Max conference, where we sat down in the Airstream podcast lounge to record this conversation. Here's Lisa. My name is Lisa Congdon. I live and work in Portland, Oregon. I'm an artist, illustrator, and writer. And I do that because I love it. I can't not do it. I have no choice. (laughs) (laughs) It's like why a flower blooms. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. So we always like to go way back to the beginning from the word go. You're Mm -hmm. a little kid. Where did you grow up? What was your family dynamic like? 
illustrate your childhood for us? So I was born on January 17th, 1968, which makes me a Capricorn. Um, and I am very much a Capricorn by all the rules. Oh, yeah? Um, yes. <laughs> um, and I was born in upstate New York. My mom is is um, also an artist, although she sort of came into it later in life as well. Um, she was older than I was, um, and she's a textile artist. And my dad is a nuclear physicist, or was. He has his PhD in nuclear physics. So I have a father who is a scientist. And a a rocket scientist. Basically, yeah. Yeah. yes. I have two siblings, a sister who's two years younger and a brother who's two years old, older. So I'm also the middle child, the diplomat. Yes. Ah, yes. got it. Yeah. So in my family, um, what's interesting is that I was definitely pinned as the least creative. Oh, how did that? Well, I'm not really sure. You know, my brother and sister are sort of more introverted than I am. So I was definitely the more extroverted one, probably the one who was out playing in the neighborhood with other kids more often. I think my brother was also, but my sister was definitely the nerdier kid who like stayed at home and did more creative play in her bedroom. I wasn't that kid who was like holed up with her sketchbook, you know, that wasn't me. And it's hard to say like which caused which, but um, I remember when I was young, both my brother and sister were in the gifted and talented program at school. And I got up the courage one day to ask my mother why I hadn't been tested. And, you know, she's like, you, Lisa, you, you're not, you're not gifted. You're a hard worker. And everybody frowns when I tell that story. Um, and I think my mother would take that back with every cell of her being <laughs> if she could. But I think my parents just had different expectations of me. And what I did was showed up and like was a helper and I was really hardworking and I was very disciplined and I did really well in school, but I didn't necessarily show all of the attributes that they would have put on a creative child or the same ones that my brother and sister had, which is interesting, right? Because I have this creative, wildly creative, successful career now. And I definitely was engaged in creative activities my entire life. But that was my mythology. Like I was the hard worker, not the artist. And that's so interesting because they already had these preconceived notions that hard work and, and being like an artist kind of don't go hand in hand. Or that they're, yeah, that they're, they're sort of binary, that they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're mutually exclusive. And what's interesting is that I do think I'm a hard, I'm definitely a hard worker. They were right about that. Yeah. And in fact, I think that's part of why once I decided to start making art when I was in my early thirties that, you know, that I sort of progressed as quickly as I did because I was so, I'm a very determined person whenever I figure out that I want to learn something, but I don't think that sort of art or creativity sort of came as naturally to me as a kid, but it's hard to know, was that because it wasn't encouraged or is that, that's the cart horse um, right. argument, like which yeah. comes first or is that, was it not encouraged because I just wasn't demonstrating it and I was demonstrating an interest in other things. And so that's something we'll never know necessarily. Right, right. Um, Were you getting validation for other things? Oh yeah. Your, your hard work. And I know yeah. you loved swimming. Yes. And, and I was very athletic. Yeah. Okay. I was definitely more extroverted than my siblings. And I always had a lot of friends and I did well in school and teachers loved me and I was a good kid. And I definitely got a lot of, you know, a lot of feedback around that. And I did well in school and I, I remember when I went to college, um, it was a history major, and I wrote this paper that won me a research prize. And my and the professor who's who was in charge of the this seminar where I 
took this class where I wrote this paper and was then granted this prize, told me that I was brilliant. And it was the first time in my life that anyone ever told me that. And so I think my parents now think I'm brilliant and maybe they did then. And I, maybe they even told me and I don't remember, but right. it felt like the first time anyone ever told me. Right. And I just remember being like, like, it's so important to hear that kind of thing. I will never forget that. And it wasn't like, this was not art. This was, I wrote a paper. Mm-hmm. I researched something and wrote a paper, but it was like someone acknowledged that, that I was special. And that's really what I think I wanted more of was to just understand you know, I had a something, something that I could like offer the world or be good at or whatever. Other yeah. than just industrious. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it sounds like perhaps the compliment on your industriousness kept that going as well. Too. Oh, yeah, like, for sure. Like that. No, rebelling everything. Against it. no, no, that <laughs> fed everything. And honestly, I think sometimes kids do rebel against that. And I, I just wasn't one of those kids. I was like, oh, if this is how I get my parents approval, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm just going to keep working hard. And I remember like wanting so badly for them to be proud of me when I got this research prize, because it was really the first time in my life that I had ever been awarded, rewarded or awarded something that significant. And, um, I look back and it was probably no big deal. I went to a really small college in Northern California. It was like, it was not like anything huge, but to me, it was like this life-changing experience. Like I'm smart. Yeah. And then later on, I started getting positive feedback when I started making things um, with my hands and um, hearing encouragement from people definitely caused me to keep going in that regard as well. It's a powerful thing. And I think a lot of times with the children that we raise, we we sometimes don't understand the power of that kind of validation, you know, especially if they're expressing themselves in an atypical way. <laughs> we don't we don't know how to quantify it ourselves. Well, I also think like you and I are from a generation where our parents were like children of the depression, right? And so they were told to raise children or they learned to raise children who were hardworking and industrious. Mm-hmm. And like, because in their generation, that that was like the values was like getting through hard times. And then we're Gen Xers and Gen Xers now have children that get told they're special all the time because Gen Xers, we didn't get told we were special all the time. Right. And right. And missed. so that's what we missed. And so then, you know, then we're raising generation of like, you know, Gen Yers and millennials who, who are told all the time how special they are, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, although sometimes I think it can be, but you know, you see what I'm saying? These things go through generations. Yes. And what's interesting is my sister who was raised in the similar way that I was, has a 19 going on 20 year old daughter who she tells every day how amazing she is because it's important for her. She understands how important it is for her to hear that because My parents were amazing parents and they loved us very much. And we knew that, but we didn't get praised a lot growing up. I had a similar, you know, same generation, but they were also conditioned to reward you for getting good grades and following the rules. That's right. They were not rewarding me for my creative interpretation of the rules. That's right. right. (laughs) Because I was causing them problems. (laughs) But like the teenage years, what were those like for you? Were you... um, Obviously, you were still hardworking and social, it sounds like. Yeah. How are you expressing your individuality? Well, I really wasn't. I mean, actually, the talk that I'm giving at Adobe Max, um, the very beginning of it sort of is about how, like, when I was a kid, I really just wanted to fit in. Um, I was, you know, one of those kids who, while I wanted to be acknowledged as being important or special, like every kid does, I mean, this sense of, like, 
love and connection and belonging is something we all need, yes. right? And I was no different. But aside from that, I really also just wanted to be accepted and part of the crowd and like to fit in. I didn't necessarily want to be different. So when I was in high school, I, you know, I got good grades. I was like on the drill team and dated boys and, you know, I was a good kid and applied to college. And um, I mean, I was off doing things I shouldn't do for sure. <laughs> but I got away with my brother used to complain because I would get away with like being like, hey, mom, I'm going to go miniature golfing with my friends when in fact I was going to a party and getting drunk. But but I got away with it because they didn't suspect they didn't it. I know. I was like, dude, you need to like work on your outer demeanor. Yeah. You know, and you then you can get cover. away with anything. <laughs> would, that just pissed him off because like he had a mohawk and was like going yeah. to, to punk shows. And I was like the goody two shoes. And what's interesting is like I moved to San. I went to college, similar kind of like towing the line and fitting in and doing well, writing this research paper and then moved to San Francisco and literally my whole interior world exploded when I got there because for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by people who were different and who weren't fitting in. And I began to see the value in that. I also realized around that time that I was gay. So I, I was like, okay, I'm part of this like subculture now. And I was trying to figure out who I was and like understanding that part of myself. And this is all while you're studying history? No, no, no. This is in San Francisco. Oh, like, after. Went after okay. I graduated, right after I graduated from college. Within a year, I sort of came out of the closet and which this was in 1991. So okay, this was a very different time. I mean, Ellen hadn't come out. Rosie yeah. O'Donnell hadn't come out, like all of these like gay icons that we think about now. And um, so it felt really scary. Absolutely. Um, but I definitely like San Francisco was the best possible place for me to go because I started to value individuality and I started to value, you know, you know, idiosyncrasies and differences and being weird. And mm -hmm. and that's when I sort of started getting tattooed and started like it's almost like I waited until I was in my 20s to express express the... my individuality. And I think it was shocking to a lot of people who knew me in this other part of my life where I was always very normal. And in fact, I wanted to be like, look like everyone else. And do you feel like they felt like you did an about face or you did? The, oh, I'm sure like, some one... people did for okay. sure. But... Especially people I went to high school and college with, but then people who were meeting me for the first time, I think, you know, didn't necessarily feel that way. But I think over time, those people also realized, Oh, this is Lisa's just living her true self now. Okay. I think it was a little hard for people to adjust to. And even people in my family were like, what? But then... Did you come out to your family at the same time? Pretty quickly after. My brother and sister first, and then my parents like a year later. Okay. And um, they were actually... My parents have always been super supportive. Um, they're amazing. Yeah. For as short-sighted as they may have been about my sort of in inner creativity when I was younger mm -hmm. or my potential to be a creative person when I was younger. I think they always been super supportive and loving of me. And, um, I think it was hard. I think more less, so less because they thought that my lifestyle was wrong, but more that they were feared for me because you have to remember again, this was like the early nineties and they were worried about what you were yeah, going to encounter. That's right. More than anything. Were they also worried about like, did they have any grief over losing the, the idea of a husband and grandchildren? Well, it's so funny. You should mention that because I don't know about my dad, but my mom admitted to me years later and she kept this from me. And I, I really like admire her that she kept this from me because I'm not sure how much I could have handled it at the time if she had, 
told me, but she admitted to me years later that she did go through this grieving process because I was the kid who was going to live, you know, get married to the man and raise children and have a career and have this, you know, because I had always been this sort of model kid, right? And I was going to take that into adulthood. And my brother and sister were these sort of weirdos who went to UC Santa Cruz and, you know. Oh, and you became a weirdo. (laughs) And I became a weirdo. And as it turns out, they both like live very fairly (laughs) conventional lives now with married with kids. So she got what she wanted. Her expectations had to go through a major readjustment. Not only, not to mention the fact that, you know, I chose not to have kids, but I easily could have because I've been in two very, you know, long-term committed relationships with with other women where, you know, we had even talked about adopting or having a kid and I chose not to, but this, this day and age, like your sexuality doesn't prohibit you from that. And at the time she didn't understand that. None of us really did. Right. And, um, she also was just sort of like, oh, Lisa's going to live this hard life. And I got into a relationship in my early twenties with somebody who I was with for eight years. And that person became part of my family. And I think over time, my mom saw, oh, Lisa is loved. Somebody is taking care of her. And, you know, they're in a sort of relationship where they take care of each other. We bought a house. We had this sort of very normal life. And I think she began to let go of these expectations. And then my sister had some kids and she got grandkids. and It was all fine. <laughs> and years later, as I said, she she admitted to me that there was a period of grief. Literally, that's what the word she used mm-hmm. is the same word you used. Um, and that she moved past it and that she purposefully didn't tell me because she she wanted me to go live my life. And she didn't want her feelings about my life to get into into the way of how I lived my life. Wow. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're you're coming out. Like San Francisco does sound like a a great place for you to do that, and yeah. also coming out as an individual as opposed to needing to fit in. It all so sort much. of happened yeah. all around the same time and over the course of a few years. And then when I was in my early 30s, I started making art, and that was like another way for me to express myself and you know, in sort of dig into my inner world. You look tired. I take it the caffeine toothpaste and adrenaline face serum aren't working? Well, maybe you should ask Santa for a nectar mattress this year. And if the big guy brings you another unicorn finger puppet, don't worry, because mattresses start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com today. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master & Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com.
Before we get to your early 30s yeah. when you got into art, there's this whole chapter where you dabbled in politics and law yeah. and then became yeah. a classroom teacher yeah. and then went on to direct an education nonprofit. Yeah. All of that, I'm sure, you know, it's all fodder. It's all grist for the mill. It's all experience that you draw from. Take us through that. Okay. So when I was in college, I was really interested in, I got really interested in politics. So this was like pre-Clinton. Remember I went to see Dukakis. Um, <laughs> but I was like getting really interested. I studied political history. And so I got really interested in in politics in general. And I was at that age. I was in college and I was like, I got to choose a political party. I got to like. That's when you your know, activism yeah. gets fired up. And my parents um, are pretty progressive. And um, so we had been raised, I had been raised by Democrats and my parents are super political now, but it, you know, this was in the seventies and eighties when I was growing up and we talked about politics periodically, but it wasn't like a major topic of conversation in my home. It wasn't until I went to college that I got really interested in it. And I was on the newspaper staff. And so there was like editorials that were being written. And a lot of the people that I was became friends with who were also on the newspaper staff um, got me interested in politics. And I had a roommate who she was going to go do an internship on on Capitol Hill. She got me really interested in in applying. So I went to work my junior year for Norm Mineta, who at the time was like a senior congressman um, from San Jose, from my home home district in California. And he went on to be Secretary of Transportation under Clinton. And then I actually think he continued to serve even under Bush. But I had this amazing experience going and having this internship on Capitol Hill when I was a junior and um, lived in Washington, D.C. And I was like, I, w I think I want to do this. And so when I finished college, I moved to San Francisco and I was going to you know, I had all these friends who were also kind of trying to get into working for different politicians. And and then I got cold feet and I just decided not to go that direction. And I really there was a little intuitive. Yeah, maybe I was like, this isn't for me. This yeah. is too um, controversial or too hard or I'm going to have to show up on people's doorstep. And like, I, I think I got freaked out by it. And a lot of my friends from college, like, this guy that I dated briefly, who ended up being a really good friend of mine in college, went on to work for Gavin Newsom for years. And um, a really good friend of mine um, is also now a, a city councilwoman in San Francisco. And, you know, so a lot of us from school, like that became life, right? And for me, I just, I decided to try something different. So I went back to school to become a teacher. I did a lot of thinking about like, what could I do for at least a few years? And I think par part of, I recognize now that part of why teaching seemed so interesting to me was that it was this creative career. And I didn't understand it in that way then, but I look back and it seemed like it would be really fun. And um, talking elementary school. Oh yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I went back and got my like teaching credential and I taught, ended up teaching elementary school for about eight years in San Francisco Unified. And I worked at a school actually that got a huge, I think it might still be, but it was the largest elementary school in San Francisco. So it was pretty huge. And um, we got a huge grant and they needed someone to coordinate all of the funding and f work with the funding organization to sort of figure out how the money was going to be used and coordinate all of the reform efforts. And, um, and I ended up getting that job. So I left the classroom to 
to have this position inside of the school. And then like a year later, the organization basically poached me from the school and I went to work for the nonprofit. So that's where I ended up working for another eight years. Okay. Yeah. That was around the time that I started making art because um, I went from having this job that was highly creative. I mean, making things interesting for children is like, yeah, figuring out how yeah. you're going to reach them and even turn on math. light bulbs and yeah. little minds. Like, yeah. Yeah. And that was so stimulating to me. Um, and I was leaving that behind um, to go work for this nonprofit, which I was excited about because I liked the work that we were doing, but I was leaving this other part of me behind. And so I started, I just sort of fell into like creative work um, that was more personal, right? Mm -hmm. Like I started taking a painting class and I don't dabbling in things. I also had more time. I mean, teaching is so all consuming. I would like get up at six in the morning, get to school, teach all day, spend the rest of the afternoon, you know, planning lessons for the next day and then collapse by nine o'clock at night. And all of a sudden I had an office job and all this energy because I had regular hours and the demands weren't as great as they are on, you know, yeah. on teachers. And um, so I had all this time and energy to try and, you know, new things. And so something compelled you to take a painting class, which kind of started a chain reaction. Or? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I have my brother to thank. Um, okay. I think it would have happened anyway because I was starting to dabble in painting and collage at home already, but the class happened because of my brother. So he had recently gone through a divorce. We both, I had also just gone through this big breakup. And so we were hanging out a lot. He also lived in San Francisco. And um, he said he was getting his um, landscaping sort of certification mm -hmm. at the University of, Cal of California Extension program. And he had to take an elective and he decided to take this painting class as an elective. And he asked me if I would take it with him because it was through the extension program. Anyone could take it. It was on a Friday night. And honestly, I think I was more excited that my brother wanted to hang out with me, you know, than yeah. I was like that I was taking a painting This is Mohawk class. brother? Um, yeah, this is Mo he no longer has a Mohawk, but yes. <laughs> and so we showed up this painting class together for an entire semester. It was like at, you know, seven o'clock on a Friday night. And we had both gone through big relationship breakups. We didn't have a social life, much of a social life anyway. So this is what we did. And we had the best time in this class and the teacher was great and my brother never, I don't think, picked up a paintbrush again, except in the context of his design work, which mm -hmm. he still does to this day. But I, something was lit me up. And I was like terrible, just like anybody who's painting for the first time, you know? Sure. But, but I was like, this is so fun. So I kept taking classes from this guy. And uh, oh, yeah. the same professor. Same, yeah. Well, not through UC Extension. So he had his own private studio where he taught classes. Okay. Um, and so I started taking classes out of his studio. There's something about a really eager student who's found something that they're really excited about that I think is a delight to teach. Yeah. Don't you believe? I mean, oh, don't yeah, you think? Totally. so he yeah. probably got like such a kick out of you. Yeah. Well, really... years later, I had work in the Contemporary Jewish Museum uh -huh. and I got an email from him and he was like, are you the same Lisa Congdon who was, you know, this was like, whatever, a decade later. And I was like, yeah, that's me. It was all because of you that I you know, that I got started. I still talk about some of the things that he taught me um, to this day, like when I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was like this, this weird fluke that my brother took me to this class and it really like lit something up in me. Well, yeah. then, you, so then you, you gave yourself permission to, to follow through. I mean, not immediately. You, you kept your full-time job for yeah. a while. Oh, yeah. Um, but you made some transitions and you yeah. turned that into a 
a full-on career. Yeah. And that was definitely not my intention at first. Like, it's not like I picked up the paintbrush and I got really into it and I was like, someday I'm going to be a professional artist. In fact, I didn't... It's Jackson Pollock. Right. I didn't even... It never occurred to me that that was possible because I didn't understand... I mean, in my mind, being an artist meant you were somebody like that who had, like, studied art or who... It was a world so foreign to me that I never, ever, ever would have imagined it. And so um, for me, it was just more like, I'm going to have fun. But the internet happened. I started sharing pictures of the stuff I was making, again, with no intention to sell it or even, you know, think of Instagram, but like, I mean, I, I kept a blog and I was on Flickr. So think about Instagram, but it's in its infancy, like before Instagram was even Instagram, there was like people sharing work on these very clunky platforms, Mm -hmm. but there was a community forming and people were learning from each other. And, you know, that's how Jamie, your partner in this podcast and I met originally is just like through this very small world of people who were either graphic designers, illustrators, fine artists, makers, crafters. The DIY movement was just kind of starting at at this. This was like in the early mid 2000s. And, you know, when you're sharing your work in this public forum, which was minuscule compared to the public forum for sharing creative work today, Mm -hmm. but it was there. And that's like, I started to see a picture of what being a professional artist could look like because a lot of the people that I began to follow or who were following me were some were also novices and experimenters like I was, but some were, were had careers already. And I got a picture of what being a professional artist could look like. And so um, I began to understand that if I worked enough at this, I might be able to make a living at it. I never imagined that it could be what it's become, but I, was like all my goal was to like pay my mortgage mm-hmm. and you know put gas in my car and eat. Um, I just wanted to do this thing. I didn't ever want to be like making a ton of money or be famous. Like that was the furthest thing from my mind. What What do you think it was about you that was an internet early adopter that felt comfortable publishing your work online and becoming part of a community of DIY and professional artists? I think that I am one of those people who people always assume that high achievers are perfectionists. And I think often that's true, but I am the opposite. Like I am very much a risk taker. I'm very much comfortable, like trying things. I'm not necessarily fearless. It's not that I don't have anxiety or fear. It's just that I have this ability to corral my fear and just do, do things anyway. And that's always been true about me. That's like, even when I was in a totally different profession, that's sort of like how I, I've always sort of approached things. And I think that the internet didn't feel that scary to me. Of course, we never knew how big it was going to be. I was like, oh, here's a place where I can learn from other people. For somebody who not lived as like a creative person for the first part of her life, I by the time I was in my 20s, I was living as a creative person. I loved decorating my house. I loved getting dressed in the morning. I was definitely had an aesthetic. And so sharing that with other people mm-hmm. through my life and through my art felt very natural to me. And I also, you know, didn't necessarily understand that, you know, so many people, you know, well, actually in the beginning, nobody was really paying attention because the internet wasn't as big as it is now. And, you know, maybe three people followed my blog or whatever. (laughs) So it didn't feel that scary. But then even once it felt scary, I was just pushing through that discomfort and fear and like being like, this is actually leading to something. So I'm going to go with it. And, um, 
Right. If you're getting the the feedback and the validation and you're already sort of over the inertia part of it, which it sounds like inertia has never been a problem for you. Right. Well, and that's the thing is like I, you know, it was kind of this full circle thing. Like I grew up in this home where I didn't often get praise or validation. And and then I started making art and putting it on the Internet and I instantly got praise and validation. And I've been very careful not to become reliant on that as like the sole source of my self-esteem. But it was certainly oh, I can be creative. I can do this thing I love and I can also share it. And there can be this feedback loop and people eventually expressed interest in buying things and, and having me have a show at their shop or their gallery and, you know, or licensing my work for this or that. That's actually how, you know, my relationship with Chronicle Books started. Like I had an art show at this little shop in San Francisco and Chronicle's based there. And somebody from Chronicle went to the show and went back to, you know, Christina Amini, who's the, you know, executive editor and said, you should talk to this person. You know, she's makes really cool art. And these little seeds that I planted started, you know, sprouting. And I got really into that. You know, I was yeah. like, this is turning into something. So I'm going to keep working at this. Well, and then the industrious side can kick in oh, yeah. because you've got every reason to believe that it's amounting to something yeah. worthwhile. Yeah. But I found it really interesting. You said you're not a perfectionist because in, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm glad to hear yeah. that. In a lot of ways, it sounds like you were not hung up by that. And I, I've seen personally and myself included, so many people just get kind of mired in the perfectionism so much so that they can't just be lean and agile and really you know, move with a lot of effectiveness because they're just worrying their projects to a, a point. Right. Or they're in, in terms of being an artist who sort of made her career on by like putting work out into the world on mm -hmm. this new thing called social media. Yeah. Not being a perfectionist really helped because I knew that my work wasn't perfect. I knew that I had a long way to go as an artist. I knew that I had things to learn. I knew that I wasn't, I talk about this a lot now as somebody whose work is way more developed and refined than it was then. Like I knew that I wasn't there yet, but I kept putting my work into the world anyway. I didn't wait. And yeah. I found that even though it wasn't perfect, people liked it. And and so I started, I didn't wait until I had figured things out to start sharing. I started sharing early on. And I think that's where not being a perfectionist helped me. I was really willing to just show my work to others, tell a story about it, essentially to be vulnerable. Yeah. Um, and uh, very early on and, and to this day, I think as well. And it was a safe place back then, the internet. More? Oh, way more. <laughs> more. <laughs> I'm not on Twitter anymore because Twitter doesn't feel like a safe place to me. Okay. It hasn't for years. But like, yeah, it's definitely like, and some platforms feel safer than others, yeah. for sure. You know, it's such an interesting world that we live in. But um, it definitely felt safer back then, both because I personally didn't have as large a following, but right. also it, it hadn't... You weren't a target either. No, 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 been... no, no. Exactly. Exactly. And and it was all about discovery back then as well. It That's right. was um people weren't so accustomed to being there to knock people down or debate like, or, or debate. Yeah. yeah, they were they were just seeing what else was out there. Yeah. As as somebody who really sort of nerds out on certain topics, like yeah, it was like this place where you would just go learn things mm -hmm. and find other people 
who nerded out on the same things, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love that, that that you grew up in that. And yeah. you mentioned your fortuitous meeting with a Chronicle Books person yeah. who, who brought you back into the Chronicle family to start illustrating. Is that Yeah. So I basically, I first um, the first thing that they did was they... My work's really changed a lot over the last decade, but I used to paint these like kind of otherworldly birch tree forests and like my work was mostly landscapes. I was using weird colors and that was sort of probably more consistent with with my work now is very colorful in ways that you wouldn't normally expect. But they loved that work. And so they did um, like a journal. So they did some gift products. So a journal and a card set. And I mean, believe me, I had like just left my job and was trying to make it as an artist. And this is a big break. Oh, like I have to remember that, you know, that kind of stuff happens for me like all the time now. It's literally no big deal. But not that I don't appreciate those opportunities when they happen, but they're like, oh, I'm going to get this deal with the stationery company. That's great. Um, this was like, like it made me feel this sense of like legitimacy and like satisfaction that was indescribable. And my actually the journal cover ended up being on the cover of the, the catalog that year. And I think this was in 2009 by the time this happened. And um, that was also just like huge. And I ended up signing with an agent that very an illustration agent that very same year who I'm no longer represented by. But that also felt huge. And I think it was she was so excited to have someone who, you know, already had this sort of contract with a because I was very new on the scene. Yeah. I hadn't really found my voice yet. But um, so a lot happened in 2007, 2008, 2009 in that sort of like things started to happen for me. They were very small compared to the things that happened in my career now, but they were so significant. They felt even bigger than some of the huge things that have happened to me recently because they were the like formative things. And well, and pathways were opening yeah. up to oh, yeah. you and that if you follow down that yeah. more things were going to open. Right. Up. And that's exactly what happened. Well, I want to get into the books. I'm sure that relationship with Chronicle Books also kind of opened up the idea to becoming an author. But I really want to know why you feel compelled to write books and put books out into the world. And you're I I mean, obviously, the illustrations make a lot of sense. But you've also done a bunch of interviews and some really fascinating topics. And you're a champion of creativity. Well, I love making books and I really, I discovered that early on. So before I made a book with Chronicle, I made a book with this very small publisher called Uppercase in Canada. And I did this project in 2010 called A Collection a Day. And I also collect lots of weird, mostly old office and school supplies. And um, and then I make them put in arrangements and by color and I photograph them. And um, another thing besides my illustration that I'm known for and I that all started in 2010 and my arrangements and photographs look very different then than they do now. But my yeah. voice around this stuff was forming. And I, for every day for an entire year, I took a different sort of photograph of one of my collections organized on an imaginary grid. And um, the woman who owns Uppercase um, got really excited about that project and she published it into a book when I was done. And I talk a lot about these daily projects that I've done that have really sort of catapulted my career. And so that turned into a book. And again, it was like a very small run and, you know, very small publisher. It didn't have big distribution. But two years later, I did this other project called um, 365 Days of Hand Lettering. And that's really where my book relationship with Chronicle started. So that project, um, Bridget Watson Payne, who's now my main editor at Chronicle and head of the, the art division there, she 
came to me about three months into that project and said I had started hand lettering quotes and which seems so cheesy now because everybody does it. But like, you know, doing this thing and that not at the time, not very many people were doing. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I think we should make a book out of the 100 of these quotes that you've been hand lettering for this daily project that you're doing. And I was like, okay. So it just sort of like she came to me and said, I follow your blog. Uh, this was before this wasn't even on Instagram. This was like before Instagram. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And so I had that. And that is th that title. It's called whatever you are, be a good one is the best selling art title that Chronicles ever released. And um, I think part of that is the title is very aspirational and it's a, it sells really well during graduation time. Oh, but makes sense. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, it's just a book of like kind of random quotes that I that I loved and collected and then illustrated and hand lettered. And that my style of hand lettering has changed. I mean, everything's different, but that book has had all this staying power. So that was sort of like this seminal thing that I did with Chronicle. And then from there, it was like, we love working with you. You, you know, I loved working with them. And so we just kept making books together. And then I wanted to make more books that weren't just art. I wanted to make books on topics. So I made mm -hmm. a book about swimming and I entered because I love swimming. It's a huge part of been always been a huge part of my life. And I interviewed swimmers and talked about why people love swimming. And I studied the history of swimming and you know, I made another book about women over 40 who were, you know, basically badass and, and interviewed a bunch of people. Like every book since then has been really a sort of like a topical and on things that I'm really interested in and talking to people that I think are really inspirational and, and, and interesting to me. So well, A Glorious Freedom is the name yes. of the book that you're just re referring to. And I love that you're celebrating the fact that um, we're not irrelevant after 40. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> well, it's so funny because people always ask me, you know, like during Q&As at talks, like women will raise their hand and say, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm 45 and I really just, I, I'm worried that I'm not going to make it in a creative career and, you know, I can't keep up. And like, what do you say? And I say, like, you have more creativity. You have more wisdom. You have more you experience, ha more experience. More DGAF. You, that's right. You, <laughs> you, If there's a time for you to do it, it's now like you have an advantage. Don't think of this as as a disadvantage. Think of this as an advantage. And part of the reason I'm able to say that is I had to tell myself the same thing because I had a lot of imposter syndrome early on about like, do I really belong here? What do I have to offer the world of art and illustration? Like, and then I realized like all of this stuff that I was sort of embarrassed by was actually the stuff that made my work resonate for people. And I encourage other people to think of their experience in that same way. That makes me want to get into your creative process a yeah. bit, if we can sure. dig into it. I know there's the, there's the overarching process, which is how you design your career, how you think about your life, how you value your creative journey. And then there's the nitty gritty, right. which is, you know, has to do with your lettering and illustration, but your prolificness belies your, yeah. your yeah. industriousness yeah. for sure. And potentially your lack of per perfectionism. Yes. I mean, do you toss a lot of stuff out as well? Yes. I talk about this all the time, like the bottom of the painting curve, you know, where you're ready to toss things out. Like I mostly work through that. Um, but I do toss a fair amount of things out as well. And, you know, every now and again, I'll look back at things that I posted two years ago and I'll cringe because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm always developing and changing and we always are sort of our own worst critic. Right. But I definitely 
am one of those people who I love to draw. I love to make things and I love sharing it with my audience. I get so much from the act of creativity and from making stuff that people can interact with and have a relationship with. Like the whole package is I love and it's also exhausting sometimes. But, so I have to take care of myself, but I'm really into it. And so I think for me, like part of the reason I'm prolific is because I have this well of energy and creativity that keeps coming back to me that I keep that allows me to keep going. Um, but I also I was not creative for so many years and maybe at some point I'll use it all up. But I do feel like it sort of regenerates itself and, um, and yeah, of course I get creative blocks and I go through periods where I feel really crappy and I don't want to make any work and I'm just posting old things on social media. But, um, but I do also manage to get myself out of those situations pretty quickly. How, how do you do that? Well, somebody asked me today, actually earlier in my talk here at Adobe Max, somebody was like, stood up at the Q and A at the end. And he said, basically that, like, how do you do that? I struggle with that. And for me, it's it's three things. One is grit. Sometimes I don't have a choice to forge on because I have a deadline mm -hmm. <laughs> and I have to show up and get the work done. And sometimes forcing yourself through the bottom of the painting curve or, you know, whatever, however, whatever analogy the, you want to use. Or, yeah. Yeah. The shark tank or whatever is the only way like in like, I do have a lot of grit. Um, and I'm built that way. Not everybody's like that. And I, um, for better or for worse, I think it also gets me in trouble. Okay. Um, but so this, that's one thing. The mm -hmm. second thing is knowing when to step away and when to take a break and when to rest and when to walk away when you have that luxury. And for some working professionals, you you know, they don't. But when you have time to step away from whatever's frustrating you or stumping you or making you feel blocked and resting and trying to re-energize and focusing on other things I think is really important. And I try to do that as much as I can. And the third thing is like, sometimes you have to stop, especially dur during that sort of phase of checking out from your own work. And like in her book, um, The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron talks about going on artist dates. And part of the reason that's so important is because you getting out into the world, um, not necessarily to go look at, at other people's art, but to, to explore and, mm -hmm. and, and take in the world around you and like having openness to that kind of experience is, can do wonders. And so I try to also do that whenever I can, especially during those periods when I have the luxury of like not forging through because yes. I have to. As creatives, we all have to grow, but right. it doesn't always feel comfortable. Right. Do you have protocol that you put yourself through to kind of get yourself through your uh, and out of your comfort zone? Or do you let it flow more organically, like that openness you were just talking about? Well, right now, my work schedule is so intense. I mean, because in some ways, putting yourself in a purposefully challenging situation is a luxury, right? Because it means you have time to go learn something new. And so, of course, I said, part of the reason my workload is so huge is because I said yes to projects. That's, that's definitely, I'm not saying that's a bad situation to be in, but it doesn't allow so much time for personal growth. And I've really been in this place where I've done some exciting work in the last couple of years and worked on many books. And I have two children's books coming out next year. And like, it's been great, but man, am I ready to like dig into learning new things? And, and cause I actually really enjoy putting myself in the situation of being a learner and Mm -hmm. It's something I advocate in my new book that 
you know, on finding your artistic voice that people do, right? That they put themselves in the situation of being a learner and challenging themselves and engaging in these sort of daily challenges. And so I'm taking a sabbatical next year um, from client work and books, and I'm still going to be making art every day, but I'm so excited because I actually am going to have more time in my schedule. One of the things I want to learn is animation. And I, I want to do like a focused personal project where for a month, I just engage for a certain amount of time every day on learning this thing. And what's great about that is like, it means that by the end of the month, I'll probably have learned a lot, but it also means that it's not this idea of something I want to do that's floating out there. That's giving me anxiety because I'm thinking about it, but not doing it. I'm actually going to be doing it. So by the time I'm done, I'm going to feel a sense of satisfaction. And I've learned that about myself that I have to assign myself. And it doesn't mean animation all day, every day for the month of January next year. It just means for a few hours every day, I'm going to focus on this thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's going to be an end point where I'm going to move on to a different challenge. But personal challenges to me, I love them because they're, it's a way of sort of corralling into a very discreet amount of time and energy, something you're interested in learning or getting better at. And then it frees you up to spend the rest of your day doing all the other things that are part of your life or your creative practice. This is fascinating to me because it does sound like you are very much a hard worker. Um, I am. And like even in my time off, I'm probably going to be creating challenges for myself, but I really enjoy it. So So in terms of taking a sabbatical, how does one prepare one's life for that? Um, You save up enough money and you let all your clients know that I'm still here, but I'm. Yes. And then. So I have some bread and butter clients that people I work with regularly, and it's possible I might have to like do some updates and, you know, I'm not, I'm not under the illusion that next year is like, I'm going to do everything in my power to make it as free of client work as possible. And yes, I have informed all of my my existing clients. It also means saying no almost every day to other clients or people who are interested. Or not this year. (laughs) Or not this year, but yes. So there's a lot of that. Um, and even to speaking engagements and other things sure. that are going to take we got my you time. Now, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I'm still doing a little bit of that kind of thing as well and traveling. Yeah. So it's a lot of boundaries and that's really hard because I'm a people pleaser and I love what I do and I want to yeah. say yes to everyone, but I can't, I can't even now that I am, but I also know that next year is so is going to be really important for me because I have spent so much time working for other people and spent so little time making my own work. And what work I do make is like drawing on the iPad. It's not really digging into painting and drawing and messiness that the way I used to, I'm excited to see what happens when I, I bought a kiln. So I want, I'm making ceramics. Like I really want to get myself out of my usual way of doing things and try some new things and really getting my hands dirty. I think that's a courageous move. I mean, you have to, you have to, yeah, I think it's incredibly courageous. (laughs) I'm just mostly excited about it. Although I know January 1st is going to come and I'm going to be like, oh shit, what am I doing now? I don't have any clients telling me what to do and I got to figure this out on my own. No. And then you're your own worst critic in a new medium. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about things that are related to work, but also your personal yeah. life, who you are as a, yeah. as a human, because you're, you're fascinating. Um, Thank you. one of the things that I think about a lot is the intersection of emotional labor and creative labor. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, I know you've, you know, you've been a classroom teacher, you've come out as gay, you've had long-term relationships, you have a great 
family relationship, but so much of what you do is a, a contribution and it's got to feel in some way like you're building trust with your audience. And where, where do you find the, the most overlap is between your emotional labor and your creative labor? That's well, really interesting. A lot of artists and designers don't want to do any emotional labor. And I think if it's uncomfortable for you, that's totally fine. Like you get to decide what your interaction with your audience or the people who consume your work, what that looks like. And that's part of being human is that you get to be you and do it your way. Right. And for me, part of like healing from all of the things in my life that have been damaging or part of being a person who cares about social justice or how women think of themselves or all of those things that affected have affected my life that I get to use art as a way of talking about those things, right? It's essentially part of my voice now. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of emotional labor that I've chosen, um, both because I feel a responsibility to, but also because it has allowed me to connect with people to the point where people will walk up to me on the street and like cry or tell me that they feel like they know me. And it's awkward sometimes because I've gotten really comfortable with that. And mostly I just give people hugs, <laughs> but um, because they don't really know me. Right. But I've shared enough of myself through this sort of emotional labor that I do. That's part of my work that they feel like they know me. And so which serves me. Right. Because you want people to feel like if you want people to connect with your work, you know, it's important that you're vulnerable in some ways in order for that to happen. Your work has to give enough to resonate. Right. right. Otherwise it's right. And part of my work is what I write about it, right? Yeah. How much of myself I share in my own experience. And part of that is like talking about how not everything about being an artist is easy or hunky dory, right? Like that there's this part of it that's actually really painful. And that's something that I experience. And there's so many layers to that that I have, I feel like I haven't even touched. So for me, it's like the work, it, the labor is the labor that I want to do and that I'm choosing to do. And it actually has been really wonderful because I, I have this connection with women in particular, especially of my generation, right? Who find some sense of hope in my message or in my work. And that's really a beautiful thing. But it's also like, I don't have this entirely private life, even though there's a lot of things about my life I don't share that people know nothing about. I have this whole other life that people might see glimpses of, you know, me riding my bike with my cycling team <laughs> on a weekend. Right. Um, and they know that I do that, but they don't they don't they know don't get they, the full story. They don't get the full story. And that's necessary because I also have to have part of me be just have friends who are not artists or not in my world and just have these relationships with people that are just about how we connect and not who I am or, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I have one really close friend who I met because she followed me on Instagram and she came up to me in line at a movie theater and, um, we got to talking and I was like, Oh, um, she was so nice. And she's a massage therapist. Like, I said, reach out to me on, on Instagram. I had just moved to Portland. I was looking for friends. So she did. And we had coffee like the next week and we just really hit it off. But it was hard for her at first because I was Lisa, the the person she follows on Instagram, Instagram and looking looks, yeah. right. And she really had to do a lot of work to sort of get over that and see me as a human being. And I had to do a lot of work and being vulnerable with her so that she could see me as this imperfect person. 
and or, you know, and so that's been a really interesting journey for the two of us, which we've We've just celebrated our four-year anniversary as friends, but yeah. Congratulations. But yeah, but you almost had to like, you're like, I didn't put myself yeah. on this pedestal. Right. But I'm still, yeah. take my hand. Yeah. I'm going to get down off yeah. of this. Yeah. Well, and likewise, I've met a lot of women in particular, and you know, through this my cycling community who no idea who I am. And then they, you know, on Instagram, they see the blue check mark after my name or whatever. And they're like, huh. And they look me up and then... Fortunately, none of them treat me any differently as a result, but there is this weird sort of relationship that I have with people based on, you know, social media, celebrity status or whatever. And um, it's a little bit awkward sometimes. I'm not complaining about it. It's just, I mean, I have this amazing career and I'm very grateful for it. But at the same time, part of me just wants to be regular Lisa and just not talk about my work and not, you know, when I'm with my friends, I just want to be, I just want to be regular Lisa, you know? Well, you sound like you've done a good job for yourself of having a bit of both. Yes, for sure. And relationship sounds like something that you've navigated pretty well throughout your life. I'm trying. Um, (laughs) I'm really lucky now. I'm married to a really amazing woman who has been on this journey with me because when we met, um, we've been together for 11 years. I was just starting out. I had just left my job. I was poor as fuck. (laughs) And, you know, borrowing money from her and my parents, like, you know, I think she had trust in me that I was going to make this work. But, you know, she's seen me go from this person who was really a struggling as a, you know, a freelance creative to somebody who's, you know, built this career and sort of been with me every step of the way. And we've also had to navigate that together. And, you know, she's here with me this week at, um, at Max and, um, you know, and sort of navigating all of the interactions that I have with people. And, um, and she's traveled with me a lot. And so she's used to it. But that is something that was not part of our relationship that we've really had to work through. And I know other people who are in my position who've really had to struggle with that a little bit more. And Mm. I feel really lucky that we just talk about it openly. We work through it. We have a sense of humor about it. And yeah, ah, it's great. great. So you guys great. are solid. We're solid. Yes. <laughs> that's yes. great. So so where do you go from here, Art Star? Uh, um, you know, I, I get asked a lot recently. I've been on a book tour. So there's been a lot of questions at the end of my talks mm-hmm. that I've been giving. And one of the most common is like, what's next for Lisa? Because I think people... They know that I'm at, I think people can sense, people who follow my work can see that I'm at this transitional point where I've been working my butt off for the last decade and I've amassed this sort of um, career that involves client work and licensing and teaching and speaking and a shop that's thriving and like all of these elements, but that I'm tired Mm. and that I also need to go back to the stuff that got me into this situation in the first place, like getting my hands dirty and experimenting. And because unfortunately, once you, I experiment in the context of the work I do with clients, but there's a certain amount of like, we're hiring you because we want you to do this and you do it. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's not a ton of it. And so I just am really craving diving back into that sort of abyss and like not knowing where I'm headed. I never thought, imagined even two years ago that I could feel comfortable, like saying no for a year, And I'm going to chronicle this because I do feel like there's part of it that's really scary, but I'm really interested in where it's going to go next and where it's going to take me. Um, Maybe in a year I'll say, okay, I'm I'm going back into client work. I'm going back into the same life that I had before, but it's also possible that it could take me in a totally new direction. And I'm ready for that. 
I mean, I'm I'm like life is unfolding. Yeah, life is unfolding. So my answer is I don't really know where I'm going next. And that's part of this next part of my life, like what I'm trying to figure out. Well, I'm excited. I'm glad you're going to chronicle it. I'm going to (laughs) follow. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Before I let you go, will you tell us about a project that you might want our listeners to know about? I have two children's books that come out next year that I'm really excited about that I would love people to keep their eyes peeled for. Um, The first one comes out in August of 2020, and it's a book called Round that I illustrated. It's a toddler book. Um, Mm -hmm. It was written by Jennifer Ward and published by um, Beach Lane Books, which is an imprint of Simon & Schuster. I also have my very own, my first um, start to finish author illustrated children's book coming out with Chronicle children's division in October of next year. So in a little less than a year. And it's a book that I wrote and illustrated on the periodic table of the elements. Yeah. So I'm finishing that up right now. Yeah. (laughs) It was like used a whole different part of my brain. So I'm really excited about that. And, um, seeing where, what, how people respond to those books. I've, I've illustrated children's books before for other people, but never made my own book. And I'm super excited about it. Yeah. Hey, Okay, so they can find you on the web and on social media yep. at Instagram. I'm at Lisa Congdon. So privilege of being an early adopter to things mm-hmm. is that you get your actual your name, name yes. <laughs> and just LisaCongdon.com okay. um, on the web. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, this here. was great. Thanks for listening. Many thanks to Adobe Max and Airstream for hosting us for this chat. To see images of Lisa's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. It really does help a lot. We also love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast. You can find me at Amy Devers. Clever is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure.